Bag your bookish perks with a 14-day free trial of Book Riot Insiders. Sign up for a monthly or yearly novel subscription and the first 14 days are free. Wishlist upcoming releases you're dying to read, get exclusive podcasts and newsletters, enter to win swag, check out the new release index curated by all the book's host, Liberty Hardy. It'll help you keep track of the most exciting upcoming books. Come on in. Your bag of bookish perks is waiting. Go to bookriot.com slash insiders to find out more. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eukera. We're recording on Friday, November 9th. Kim, hello. Hello, Alice. How are you? Uh, I am swell. I have been cat-sitting for a pair of Siberian cats, which uh, do you know – have you actually – actually, I've been posting a lot of photos of them. Have you seen them? I have. They're adorable. They have these um, – so they're like – my friends who own them, uh, one of them has extreme allergies. So they got these very special cats because of his allergies. So they have um, – it's like less dander. It has to do with the like the hair instead of fur or something. But so they have these like silky, amazing coats and like these basically like manes around their heads. And they just look so majestic and just like amazing. So I've been having a great time with that. Uh, what have you been up to? Um, I have been grouchy because uh, it snowed in Minnesota. Uh, it actually snowed in October, but it didn't stick. And then now it snowed this week and it is sticking. And today it was like 18 degrees and windy and it was awful. And I, I do not like it, which is ridiculous because I live in Minnesota and I need to just like put on my big girl pants and get over it. But uh, yeah, it's uh, not my favorite, not my favorite. So a little, little perturbed by the weather, I guess. <laughs> I don't think I've heard you that grouchy about the weather ever. Um, that was great. That was great. Yeah, and I, yeah, maybe we weren't podcasting and like it snowed in like April this year, which was just, it was like a weekend blizzard where like it dumped feet of snow on the ground. Maybe not feet. I was like eight to 10 inches probably. Uh, and we were all just like stuck in the house for a weekend in April. And I was so grumpy about it. Uh, but maybe we weren't recording then. So I never got to complain. (laughs) Uh, Oh goodness. Uh, so I have, um, I guess one quick piece of follow-up, which was a piece of, uh, a recommendation from, a uh, follower audience member. I don't know what the word is on Twitter named Rob. Um, when we talked last week about, um, liking, uh, young adult nonfiction biographies, cause that's like the level of biography that I am interested personally in reading. Um, and he recommended the, um, who is series, which is a series or excuse me, who was series, uh, which is a series of middle grade illustrated kind of biographies. Um, they're by penguin, Ran- penguin random house. Uh, and I looked them up and they look completely delightful. Um, they're all like 115 or 112 pages long. They've got some illustrations, but they're not entirely like picture books. Um, and the covers are amazing. They have these like big head, uh, graphics of these famous people. And so it's like, who is Nikola Tesla or Bono or Sacagawea or uh, Stephen Hawking or Judy Bloom, uh, Selena, which I'm very I'm excited about, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen. So uh, yeah, the Who Was series from Penguin Random House was recommended by a reader. And I am definitely 
going to see if my library maybe has those because that's really cool. Uh, and he also noted that there is an annotated uh, Frankenstein that came out this year from Norton because uh, I love Frankenstein so much. And I, I do absolutely have the annotated Frankenstein. So uh, good job, nerds. There we are. <laughs> did we talk about the Frankenstein read-along that I, I did in May? Trala Frankenstein? Because I don't used, think we did. We did. Um, So I, I thought it would be funny to do a May sort of spring-themed Frankenstein reading because I feel like <laughs> everyone does October, right? Um, yeah. So, so it was hashtag Trala Frankenstein. And um, we did a giveaway of actually that annotated Norton uh, Frankenstein. So that's what that's what reminded me of it because that's, that's a beautiful edition. Oh, my gosh. It's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any, any follow-up? I have zero follow-up this week. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So uh, one more piece of uh, business, I suppose. Well, two more pieces of business. The first is a reminder that we're doing a holiday gift guide episode, which will actually be our next episode that'll be coming out at the end of November, I think November 27th. Uh, So if you need a nonfiction book recommendation for a holiday gift, either that you can put on your own list uh, and ask for your family or uh, friends to buy you or that you can buy for someone else, uh, you can email Kim at riotnewmedia.com or get us on Twitter and we will try to take some of those reader uh, book requests into our gift guide. So again, you can email Kim at riotnewmedia.com if you have holiday gift recommendation needs, and we will do our best to try and help with that. Uh, And so before we get fully into the episode, I'm going to do our first sponsor, uh, which is uh, the book Witness, Lessons from Eli Weisel's Classroom by Ariel Berger. Uh, and this one sounds super interesting. So uh, Arielle Berger was a student of Eli Weissel's, who's a famous author, um, who uh, Weissel passed away in July of 2016. And so in this book, we get to see him as uh, we've never seen him before, which is not only as an extraordinary human being, but also as a master teacher. So Arielle Berger was one of his students and friends. Um, and so he, in the book, takes us inside of their classroom. Uh, we're listening and storytelling, keep memory alive. And it's a front row seat to these lessons in compassion and that will teach us that listening to a witness makes us all witnesses. Um, and it's just the kind of background on this is super interesting. So uh, Berger met Weissel as a teacher when he was 15 years old. Um, in his 20s, he was a student of his at Boston Universities, and then he became his teaching assistant, and they were friends uh, for the remainder of Weissel's life. And so Weissel gave the um, go-ahead to write this book before he died. And so it's a, a story about him in a different way, which I think sounds fascinating. Uh, so that book is Witness, Lessons from Eli Weissel's Classroom by Ariel Berger. And with that, uh, that's right, I always do the transitions between things. Here we go. Our first uh, segment every week is new books, where we talk about books that we are excited or looking forward to. Uh, And I feel like I've been talking for a long time, so I'm going to throw it to you, Alice, and have you go first instead of me. Oh, wow. Okay. Let's see. So taken off guard here. My first a new book for this week, I'm actually really excited about, not that I'm not usually excited about our new books, but um, it is called Bringing Down the Colonel, A Sex Scandal of the Gilded Age and the Powerless Woman Who Took on Washington by Patricia Miller. It's out November 13th from Sarah Crichton Books. Um, I got this, I got like sort of a galley of it, like an early copy months ago, and I was immediately so excited about it. So um, the cover, first of all, is really, really striking. It is about um, so this journalist, Patricia Miller, tells the story of Madeline Pollard, who is this sort of unlikely 19th century women's rights crusader. So this is, you know, like 100 percent up my alley and it should be up yours as mm-hmm. well. Um, so after. <laughs> <laughs> OK, 
Kim's just like, yep, yep. Um, no, but after an affair with a prominent politician uh, left her, you know, quote unquote, ruined, Pollard brought the man and the hypocrisy of America's control of women's sexuality to trial. And surprisingly, spoiler alert, she won, which is nuts. So, yeah, I know. So Pollard and this very sort of prominent Kentucky politician, Colonel Breckenridge, which just reminds me of like Foghorn Lighthorn, but that's beside the point, <laughs> began their decade long affair when she was a teenager, right? So they like met on a train. He was like, hey, what's up? <laughs> and like basically uh, he's this, you know, very famous older man. He ends up like going to her school and picking her up essentially like being like let's go to a uh. concert and then like not going to the concert he, he like arrived in a closed carriage and everyone was scandalized uh. yeah because they were like it's really hot out why do you have a closed carriage so <laughs> it's so like looking back on like what was right you don't even think about it at the time and then you're like oh yeah i guess that's super shady literally yeah. anyway so <laughs> After uh, the death of his wife, Breckenridge asked for – well, it says asked for Pollard's hand in the story actually. So she says like he said that if his, if, any, if anything happened to his wife that he would marry her, right? Because they've been having this affair for like 10 years. They have children together. And then after his wife dies, Pollard is like, hey, so <laughs> we're going to get married. Let's do this. And he's like, oh, um, yeah. In like a in like a bit, don't talk about it to anyone. So she had, right. So she ends up like putting a notice in the paper, being like, "We're engaged," and then he immediately is like, "No, we're not." To the paper and takes it out. So he ends up marrying someone else. Basically, that's what happens. He marries someone else. Yeah, it's horrible. Really quickly too. And so Madeline Pollard is suing him for a breach of promise, which was basically like the only power women had when they were, you know, again, quote unquote, ruined. It's like, okay, so you can, but the normal reason for that was to make them marry you. So, but he was already married at this point. So the whole thing here was <laughs> that she was saying that the sexual morality of men and women should be judged equally. So she was like, he needs to like basically be held accountable for the fact that he did this and he like broke this promise and like it's not like i am just the only person who has like done something like socially wrong here because he also should have been seen as doing something socially wrong so it's this like amazing case from the late 1800s and uh the book is out now everyone should read it it's really well written and fun um so and especially relevant in our current times of uh a lot of nasty stupid stuff happening so it's also very sort of like <laughs> I was going to swear. And then I was like, I don't know if we can swear. <laughs> but anyway, um, so again, it's called Bringing Down the Colonel, A Sex Scandal of the Gilded Age and the Powerless Woman Who Took on Washington by Patricia Miller. That's amazing. I'm so glad you talked about that because that was on my list of November books, but I didn't have the full subtitle. I just had the title Bringing Down the Colonel. And I was looking at that and I was like, oh, that's probably about like Nazis or something, whatever. And so I skipped over it. And now it sounds like 100% in my alley too. Excellent recommendation. That's so fun. Um, my first book is a science book. It's called Gene Machine, The Race to Decipher the Secrets of the Ribosome by Venki Ramakashan. Uh, and it is out November 6th, so already from Basic Books. Um, and the author, so he is a Nobel Prize winning biologist. Actually, I think he won his Nobel Prize in chemistry, um, writing about uh, his participation in the race to discover the inner workings of DNA. Um, so specifically, his research looks at the ribosome, which is, um, and I'm quoting the book here, the molecular, molecular machine that helps DNA come to life and the 
and what helps turn that genetic code into proteins, which then turn into us and pieces of our bodies and everything. Um, and so part of the research of the ribosome, um, there are tons of medical and scientific developments that can happen once that's actually kind of decoded and undercover, including stuff like better antibiotics. Um, and so this book is kind of his personal story as a scientist, kind of parallel, uh, including his research and kind of why this research is important. So uh, Ramakrishnan was born in India. He was the son of two scientists. Um, he went to college in India before he came to the United States for graduate school. Um, where he studied theoretical physics and then decided he was going to study biology instead, which like that just blows my mind because I kind of couldn't do either of those things. Uh, but to have done both of them and win a Nobel prize is just bonkers. Um, in a like good way. So uh, he's currently at Cambridge. And um, so yeah, this book is just kind of a memoir about his life as a scientist, and then also the study of the ribosome. Um, and I just, I really like memoirs by scientists. They're usually super nerdy. Um, and you can like tell how nerdy they are. Like there's just this sort of sense of like, almost like dad jokes in them and stuff. And I just think they're super fun. So I'm really optimistic that this one will be good. I haven't really gotten to dig into it very much yet. Um, but I love books about people's passions and the stuff that they do. So uh, I think it'll be good. So the book is the or Gene Machine, The Race to Decipher the Secrets of the Ribosome by Venki Ramakrishnan. So, Kim, I got a, I yes. think, C or D in chemistry. And I realize that this is maybe not chemistry, or, but rather biology. But I also did not do very well in that. So my question is, is the ribosome like like the little like key that turns things on? Like, is it like a little like on switch? Yes. I believe that that is true. Okay. So, so this is like, because you were talking about it creating like proteins that turn into us so it's like it's like a little let me change the metaphor is it like it's like a little engine or something that like makes things go yeah it's sort of the code that helps everything else go as i understand it very basically uh someone who is a scientist is going to add us on twitter and be like you guys don't know what you're talking <laughs> about and that's fair because we don't well we that would be we still support <laughs> their books, so they should just deal with it. Um, or rather, you do, because I do not understand sure. what they're talking about. But this sounds great, just despite that. Um, let me scroll up to that title. Yeah, and Gene Machine is real fun, because it rhymes. <laughs> That's my main commentary it is. on that. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. It is. Okay. Anyway, um, moving on. I have another uh, – it's not 19th century, but it is early 20th century uh, sort of scandalous woman's story. That was – November was, like, real great for that. Uh, so this is A Tale a tale of Two Murders, Guilt, Innocence, and the Execution mm -hmm. of Edith Thompson by Laura Thompson out uh, November 6th from Pegasus Books. So A Tale of Two Murders is this uh, examination of the Ilford murder, which became a legal cause celeb in the 1920s in England and led to the hanging of Edith Thompson and her lover, Freddie Bywaters. So basically what happened, um, and I saw an episode of Murder Maps on Netflix about this, and it was, it's maybe my favorite episode of Murder Maps. Um, it's this really sort of tragic story, or actually I would say like doubly tragic story. So yeah, so on the Ooh. night of October 3rd, 1922, Edith and her husband, Percy, were um like taking a walk after you know from the theater and this man sprang out of the darkness and stabbed percy to death right so you're like walking and then that that happened so the assailant was freddie bywaters which was like he had Ooh. for a while he had lived with edith, with edith thompson and her husband and then he like i think um 
Percy and Edith had fought and like I think Percy like either hit her or something happened and Freddie like defended her and Percy was like get out of my house so but I don't think he knew that they were having an affair but that was definitely happening Anyway, so the police discover that uh, that Freddie and Edith were having this affair, and she had like denied knowledge that this was that she knew that the attack was going to happen. Right? She was like, "This was a total surprise to me." But she was then arrested as his accomplice. But then they found these like really intense love letters that she wrote to Freddie, and so they're like, and they read them at the trial, which is you know like hideously embarrassing, and also that's going to make people think like, "Well, of course you like conspired with him to have your husband killed." So. She was yeah. found guilty. She ended up being hanged along with Frederick Bywaters, mm-hmm. even though Freddie also was like, she didn't know anything. She was innocent. Um, so he was like obviously guilty because he did it, right? Like people saw him. Like that was it. But <laughs> the question is kind of like, was she guilty? And from the episode of Murder Maps, they were kind of being like, it really doesn't seem like she was. Um so this book sort of delves into that and talks about their story, which I find, again, like really compelling. And when I saw this was coming out, I was really excited because this is um, – it is a really fascinating story. So, again, it is A Tale of Two Murders, Guilt, Innocence, and the Execution of Edith Thompson by Laura Thompson. Excellent. I enjoy that title as well, A Tale of Two Murders. That's good. Uh, it's, a, it's a compelling interesting title. Um, so my second book is one that I have been actually kind of looking forward to for quite a while, um, which I'm, I'm excited to talk about. So the book is called Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward by Gemma Hartley. And it's out November 13th from Harper One. Um, and so this is a book that is all about the mental load that women are expected to carry based on the way that women are expected to deal with other people. So the idea that women are often called on in work and home and their relationships and out in the world to anticipate and manage the needs of others, often ahead of their own. Um, The whole book is kind of about that emotional labor and how that works. So um, the reason I was excited about this one is because um, Gemma Hartley wrote this 2017 article that was ran in Harper's Bazaar, I think. um, And it was called Women Aren't Negs, We're Just Fed Up. And it was this it's, it went around like all of my social media channels because women read it and they were like, yes, that is exactly it. We're not nagging you. We're just tired of bugging you. Um, and so the book really expands on the ideas she did in that article. And um, the article basically argues that women perform thankless emotional labor all the time. And that even when people in relationships or work relationships or anything, even when like you're doing the same amount and you feel like the work is equal, the amount of emotional labor women do to anticipate others' needs and kind of manage all of that stuff means that women are always doing more work that people don't value or anticipate or care for or um yeah value or understand that needs to be done so the the book expands on that article and looks at why women are expected to do all of this labor and then how that expectation of doing emotional labor fuels gender inequality limits women's opportunities steals time and adversely affects the quality of our lives um and i remember in 2017 when i read this article i just remembered thinking like yes this is it like that is what is so hard about this and it's frustrating um being in relationships and feeling like you're managing everything and not being an equal partner to people um so anyway i think the book is going to be super interesting and i'm looking for i've got it pre-ordered so it hasn't arrived quite yet but i'm really looking forward to it when it does uh so that is fed up emotional labor women and the way forward by Gemma hartley that sounds so good. Um, I'm going to get like really real for a sec about uh, <laughs> like a situation with this because I was literally just talking to my therapist about it. Um, 
so my uh as you kim know my my mom passed away in may Mm -hmm. and i realized because i have three brothers and then my dad so that's like who was you know left Mm -hmm. uh basically and in the wake of like you know having like the funeral and all that stuff my dad was like only messaging me about all of these details, right? Like, so talking about like what we were going to do for the funeral and like the wake and all this stuff and these things that were like very heavy emotional topics. And I finally, I texted my oldest brother who fortunately is willing to listen about this kind of thing. And I was like, I am not going to be the only child (laughs) of his when he has four because I'm the only girl, I'm not going to deal with this by myself. And he was awesome. And he texted my dad and was like, how can I help? And that was even just that I was so appreciative of, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like having someone else like step up and be like, how can I help with this? So, um, gosh, that book sounds extremely relevant to, I think like most, if not all women, because I think there, there is that definite like expected, you know, like unstated though, cultural, um, expectation. Yeah. Just that women will take care of like organizing things or remembering to send Christmas cards or, you know, when you're going out with friends, remembering that you have to bring an appetizer, you know, like all of those, there's like little, I'm, I'm thinking that from like a heterosexual relationship perspective. Um, just like all of those little pieces of being good citizens in the world, like women get stuck dealing with that. Um, And I think that's part of what the book is about. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, Totally changing text. My last sort of uh, new pick, which I am very excited about, is End of the Megafauna, The Fate of the World's Hugest, Fiercest, and Strangest Animals by Ross D.E. McPhee. It's out November 13th from W.W. Norton. Uh, So this book has awesome illustrations, first of all, which is sort of along with the word megafauna, which I have (laughs) forever been attracted to as a word. Um, That made me like really interested in it. So basically, you know, until a few thousand years ago, i.e., pretty much when humans started spreading out across the globe. Um, Creatures including gorilla-sized lemurs, 500-pound birds, and crocodiles that weighed a ton or more. Oh, and anteaters that were like four to 8,000 pounds, which is, I can't even imagine, Um, roamed the earth. So these- How do anteaters that big like survive on just eating ants? I don't know if it's like they- are just genetically related to anteaters, but didn't just eat ants or... Sorry, I interrupted you. That is... Anyway, continue. No, it's fine. I'm not not an (laughs) anteaterologist, but in another life, I would want to be. Anyway, um, so they found these like megafauna, right? Like these giant mammals um, on every habitable continent and on like a lot of islands and stuff. So it was basically all of them are almost are almost all of them are now gone. Um, and so the, the book is basically so it's called End of the Megafauna. It's looking at kind of all of these possibilities as to like why they're gone because people have offered up a lot of different theories. Some of the ones that I've seen that are most emphatic are talking about how, again, like it seems like when humans showed up in all of these places (laughs) that the megafauna disappeared. Um, But so Ross D.E. McPhee, the author, is a paleomimologist, which is the first time I've seen that word Mm -hmm. to my recollection. Um, So that was exciting. So he kind of examines all of the leading extinction theories and then presents his own conclusions. So he shows how theories of human overhunting, as well as catastrophic climate change, fail to account for critical features of these extinctions. So he's kind of like, okay, so there's other factors also at play then, right? Because there's, it couldn't just be these things. Um, 
But along the way, we learn how time is determined in Earth history, how DNA is used to explain the genomics and phylogenetic history of megafauna. And I had to look up the word phylogenetic. And it was basically like how we can tell how, because you know the word phylum, mm-hmm. like kingdom class phylum. I think we had to memorize in like school. Yeah. So it's basically like how they're linked to these, like, but genetically how they're linked to these other rela- like relatives on the family tree. Um, so how, uh, that history of megafauna and how synthetic biology and genetic engineering may be able to reintroduce these giants of the past. So, uh, which is like my dream come true. Essentially. <laughs> whenever, whenever I see something that's like, they found this, you know, like DNA cell, like this one like cell of this thing that has some DNA, I'm like, clone it. My, my heralding <laughs> cry is clone it. And then people are like, that's not how cloning works. And... <laughs> I just, uh, I just want to be around megafauna. That's all I want. <laughs> so, anyway, the book is called "End of the Megafauna: The Fate of the World's Hugest, Fiercest, and Strangest Animals" by Ross D. E. McPhee. I forget that you love ancient and you know, Earth history. That's so. I love that phylogenetics. I actually knew what that was because um, in college I had to, the science class that I ended up taking. It was like a biology class that was like well past what an intro biology class should, like. It was not an intro biology class and I don't know why I signed up for it, but I did. It was much too advanced for me. Uh, we had to do phylogenetic trees where we like built out trees showing how relationships between things worked and how they may have evolved from one another. And I... I did well. Wow. I know. Anyway, very exciting. All right. So my final book is, I guess, another relationship book, but maybe not quite as, uh, I don't know, different than the other one. Uh, So the book is called First Comes Comes Marriage, My Not-So-Typical American Love Story by Huda Al-Mashari. And it comes out November 13th from Prometheus Books. Uh, And this is a memoir by a woman who uh, is part of an arranged marriage. And so it's the story of how that happened in her life. So uh, when she was six years old, uh, she met the boy that she would married. Um, they were both American-born children of Iraqi immigrants who were gray, who were lived in California, um, but they lived at different ends of the state. And but because there were so few people of that kind of family situation, they became close friends and these families kind of spent a lot of time together. Um, And so um, Huda was set to marry Hadi, who is one of the boys in that family. Um, And their marriage was arranged from when they were really little. Um, But Huda wanted a more kind of romantic story than that. So, um, but what happened is their family forbid the two of them from going out alone together before they were married. And so they had to sort of navigate this idea of wanting to be together, but also kind of expectations and reality when it comes to romance and their arranged marriage. Um, and so it, um, it's a story that kind of, yeah, explores something that we don't know a lot about and challenges uh, taboos and stereotypes about um, arranged marriages in Muslim communities and um, some of what that's about. So I think it sounds just kind of charming and interesting and um, maybe a little bit of a lighter nonfiction read than some of the other stuff that we have been talking about lately. Um, so the book is called First Comes Marriage, My Not-So-Typical American Love Story by Huda Al-Mashari. Um, the cover of that is so cute it is, yeah. that I had to like when when I saw it was coming out, I was like, "Is that nonfiction?" Because it looks like a really cute rom com cover. It does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no memoir. That's great. Good job repping nonfiction, guys. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do some quick shout outs because there are truly so many good looking books coming out mm-hmm. in November that I was like, we can't fit them all like in terms of like in depth 
talks. So um, some of the ones that are also out now are Dirty Tricks, Nixon, Watergate, and the CIA by Shane O'Sullivan, Beyonce Information Remixing Black Feminism by Omiseyeke Natasha Tinsley, and Born to be Posthumous, The Eccentric Life and Mysterious Genius of Edward Gorey by Mark Deary, which has an awesome cover. Um, there are just so many new books out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's amazing. And then as we, of course, are winding down towards the end of the year, uh, people are publishing fewer and fewer books so right now we get this like avalanche uh which is very exciting but anyway on that note uh our next sponsor for the episode is in the name of the children an fbi agent's relentless pursuit of the nation's worst predators it's published by ben bella books recommended by the new york times book review in the name of the children is 30-year fbi veteran jeffrey reinick's personal harrowing account of what it takes and what it costs to try to keep our children safe and to bring to justice those who prey on society's most vulnerable victims. Reinick and his co-author, award-winning writer Marilee Strong, captivate readers with stories from horrific investigations, including the notorious Yosemite Park murders, as he faces predators and elicits confessions from those who kidnap and kill through a unique empathy-based approach." That, just to be clear, is a empathy-based approach on the behalf of the interrogator, not the people who are kidnapping children. Anyway, thank you so much for sponsoring Ben Bella Books. And again, that book is In the Name of the Children by Jeffrey Reinick. <laughs> just want to do a little dramatic pause there. Yeah, looks good. Um so after that, we will move into our weekly theme. Um, and this week, we thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about some uh, book awards and specifically some nonfiction that has been longlisted or uh, has been a finalist for book awards this year. Because um, there are a ton of them, and they, a lot of them come out kind of near the end of the year, um, other than Pulitzers, which are usually kind of early in the year. But there's a lot of other ones that come up at the end. And so it's kind of fun to look at those and see which books kind of made the cut and which ones are getting a lot of recognition. So uh, for this segment, we each picked a book award that we are interested in and tried to find a couple of books that were recognized in it to talk about and kind of show a little bit about what that award is about. So um, Alice, why don't you go first? Because I think yours is kind of a fun one. Yeah. Are we doing our our shortlist and longlist picks at the same time? Uh, I don't know. How do you want to do it? Either way is fine. Yep. Going to do it. So focusing... On my award is the Carnegie Award, which was created in recognition of Andrew Carnegie's deep belief in the power of books and learning to change the world. Uh, so the shortlisted authors and eventual winners reflect the expertise of an eight-member selection committee of library professionals from across the country who work closely with adult readers. So this is essentially a, a, an award picked by librarians. So people who are like, this is what I've seen. This is what I've seen the most. You know, like either circulated or have heard the best things about, and that I have personally have enjoyed the most. Um, it's sort of like that's the awards um, kind of like special spot in the award pantheon, if mm-hmm. you will. Uh, so my long list pick is High Risers: Cabrini Green and the Fate of American Public Housing by Ben Austin. It's published by Harper. Um, I really was interested in this book and I've been meaning to read it for a long time, meaning since February when it was published because um, it's set in Chicago uh, and I was here when Cabrini Green still existed. So what this is, it was built in the 1940s and it was these like 23 towers that held a population of 20,000 people in just like 70 acres, which were, it was a few blocks from the Chicago's gold coast, which is like our extremely wealthy area. Yeah. 
And but it was this thing where you would drive past on the, the bus that I took to work like every day. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's Cabrini Green. Like you got to stay away from it. And there was these these extremely high rise things with like scorch marks outside the windows and just like you hear all these like horror stories from it. But um, it became synonymous with sort of like, you know, crime, squalor, the failure of government. But it was also this much needed resource because it was housing, right, for uh-huh. all of these people who who needed it. But by 2011, uh, which again is I moved to Chicago in 2008. So um, I was there like just at the tail end of this um, thing. So every high rise had been raised. So completely gone. There is a target there now. Like <laughs> this, all of this housing for the poor is just like completely gone. So this uh, island of sort of black poverty was engulfed by the white affluence around it. I mean, again, hence the target. So in this novelistic um, and eye-opening narrative, Ben Austin tells the story of America's public housing experiment and the changing fortunes of American cities. So he he interviews all these um, residents who were living in Cabrini Green and kind of just like uh, – it's sort of similar to uh, – in the warmth of other suns by hmm. Isabel Wilkerson. Yeah. So he just sort of takes that sort of, I'm going to interview people and then tell in this like narrative fashion. Um, but again, it, it just seems really fantastic. I understand why it would make the long list. So that is high risers, Cabrini green and the fate of American public housing by Ben Austin. Um, and then the short list, uh, which is who knows if it's going to win, but so they break out three shortlist uh, nonfiction and three fiction. So this is obviously on the very short uh, nonfiction uh-huh. list, which is The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border by Francisco Cantu. It's by Riverhead uh, Books. Um, so the author, Francisco Cantu, his mother was a park ranger and daughter of a Mexican immigrant. He joined the Border Patrol um, because he had sort of grown up around there and he, you know, like saw all of this, um, basically the effect of, of illegal immigration. So he and his uh, partners learned to sort of track other humans, uh, which uh, just sounds like icky, right? Like you hear that and you're like, oh gosh. But he saw, you know, like there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of issues with like, there are actually like dangerous people who try to come through and there's, um, you actually, there's a, a lot of stuff in terms of, um, you have to make sure that people are uh, inoculated and all these things. Like there's a reason that we have like legal migration. Um, but so they had to, uh, they ended up, there's actually a lot of people who pass away when they are trying to cross the border. So then the border patrol agents have to um, deal with a lot of um uh dead people i'm so sorry this is so dark but this is this is the reality and this is why this book has uh, gotten so much attention so they then have to deliver to detention those they find alive so he essentially more and more felt like he was complicit in this very dehumanizing enterprise right like understandably so we ended up leaving the border patrol and returning to you know civilian life but then the rest of the book relates to this friendship that he developed with an undocumented Mexican immigrant who became trapped in the system because he returned to Mexico to be with his dying mother and to bury her. And then he was unable to come back. And sort of the more and more that he tries to come back, the deeper he gets like trapped in the system that does not actually seem to care for real people. Um, so this is Francisco Cantu kind of writing from both sides of it, right? Because it's his time as a Border Patrol agent and all of the problems he sees with people trying to escape across the border to then people who get stuck and who need to come back and who can't um, or who need to get here in the first place and who can't, who have like a very legitimate reason um, to get here. So um, again, that is The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border by Francisco Cantu on the Carnegie shortlist. Excellent. Those are two really interesting picks. Uh, 
Yeah, Carnegie is always interesting. They pick stuff that's kind of some of it seems like it's very obvious, and then some of it is always a little bit under the radar and different, um, which is fun. So, um, the book award that I wanted to talk about is the National Book Award, uh, and that one, uh, the uh, long list was announced. I think a month or two ago and the winners from the shortlist will be announced actually November 14th. So if you're listening to this podcast on the 13th, that will be tomorrow. If you're listening to it later, they will have already announced the winners. So we're kind of recording this, I don't know, back in time or whatever. Um, so yes, yeah, so the national book awards, um, they're uh, put on or organized by the National Book Foundation, uh, but the National Book Awards actually have been giving out literary prizes since the 1950s, or 1950 actually. Uh, and so they do uh, long lists and short lists in a bunch of different categories, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, um, translated literature, and young people's literature. Um, and so this one is always an interesting book award. I think the long list is always... Um, so last year in 2017, um, I, I didn't love the long list. I thought it was it was really political, which I understand why it was, but it was there just wasn't anything sort of out of the box about it a lot. They were all kind of in the same vein of what we were all like worried and thinking about. But this year's long list, I thought actually was really kind of interesting. There's more, there's some science books, there's some political books, there's some history, there's... Um, just some interesting stuff on it. So um, if you want to go check out the long list, you can find it on the National Book Award website, and we'll link that in the show notes. Um, the, but the long list of title that I actually ended up um, looking into and reading a bit of is actually one of the more political ones, and it's called One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy by Carol Anderson. Um, and I fortuitously, fortuitously got this one from the library like on Monday of this week. Um, election Day was... Tuesday. And so in the wake of all of the just like voting shenanigans and problems and shenanigans is like too silly of a word to even be using, like the like very clear voter suppression and um, stuff that's happening in Georgia and Florida and other places. Um, I felt like this one was a particularly important book to bring up and talk about. So uh, One Person No Vote is just essentially a history of voter suppression in the United States. So um, the first chapter is um, a really condensed history of voter suppression from uh, 1865 until the present. And so it talks about all of the different extremely racist ways that um people tried to suppress votes uh, in history and then what legislation was done to combat that, uh, the um, creation of the Voting Rights Act, and then kind of ends that chapter with the um, 2013 Supreme Court case that essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act because um, allegedly or some members of the court argued we didn't really need it anymore, but that is not true. Um, and so the rest of the book goes into different specific ways that voter suppression is still happening in the United States today. So looking at um, the idea of photo ID laws and how those are related to voter suppression and gerrymandering and the closing of polls. Um, and so it goes into some of these very specific techniques that are happening now by um, people who do not want particularly minorities to vote. Um, and so far it is really, really good. I think you can maybe tell it's gotten me a little riled up about like just how awful this is. Um, it's extremely well sourced. Um, her writing is really clear and succinct. Um, and she has a very clear point of view, but I think you can tell that she like knows what she's talking about and she's not being alarmist or anything like that. Like these are things that are happening that we should care about. Um, so I am 
glad that this book made the long list for the National Book Award. It's going to be getting more attention, I hope. Uh, so that book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy by Carol Anderson. And then the um, shortlisted book, or the one of the five, there are five, I think, finalists. Uh, yeah, one, two, three. Yeah. Maybe only four. No, five. Sorry. Ugh. Having a brain fart right now. So anyway, five finalists. Um, and the one that I um, actually just managed to get at the library first and read uh, was called Heartland, A Memoir of Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth by Sarah Smarsh. Um, and this is another, it's, it's a memoir um, by a woman who is who was born to a fifth-generation Kansas wheat farmer. Uh, that was her father. And then her mother, um, she's kind of the product of generations of teen pregnancies or teen mothers on her mother's side. So her mother was a teenage mom and her grandmother was, and I think her great-grandmother was too. Um, so it's about how those two sides of her family kind of come together and what it means. Um, so she grew up on a farm or in the country just outside of Wichita, Kansas, um, with just a ton of poverty around her where people couldn't have their medical conditions treated because they didn't have insurance or consistent doctors. Um, their jobs were often unsafe, even when they when they were on farms or when they were working other labor. Um, abusive relationships and limited resources and information that really affected um, their mobility and their ability to even look towards the American dream. So it's a really um, clear and heartfelt and um, a smart look at what poverty can do and what poverty means in places where we talk a lot about the white working class and what kind of struggles they have. Um, I think this is a really empathetic look at that without being, um, without trying to like explicitly like explain white working class Trump voters. I think it's just sort of a look at kind of what that is. Um, so there's a mix of narrative and commentary. Um, the commentary doesn't feel like it's particularly well sourced, but I guess that's because it's a memoir. They're not really, um, she's not really doing that. So she's stating a lot of things as fact that um, if you agree with her politically, you're going to think, yeah, that's true. And if you don't, might have questions about, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's just been really good so far. I mean, I'm almost finished with it in just a few days. I sat down and read a lot of it one Sunday afternoon because um, it's a really engaging, thoughtful story. Um, and I think it it's a good example of a lot of the like books that are coming out now of trying to understand sort of like flyover country and um, white working class people who live there. So uh, the book is called Heartland, A Memoir of Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth by Sarah Smarsh, which is a finalist for the National Book Award. Don't we live in flyover country? We like do. Both of us? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that we do. Oh, that's fun. Also, I wanted to point out that I actually sometimes think it's more valuable to check out an awards long list books mm -hmm. because you never you never really know like kind of the politics, et cetera, that go into the short list. So and the long list usually has some like if you're looking for like a curated list, right, of like like really high quality, like awesome books from the last year, then uh, I think award long lists are an excellent place. And did, uh, on the Carnegie on the long list also was The Feather Thief, which you recommended like ages ago mm -hmm. and has the most beautiful cover. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, awesome. So our final segment three uh, for this week is um, we're thinking a little bit about Thanksgiving coming up in, I guess, as we tape a couple of weeks, maybe when this comes out, it's a little, it is obviously a little closer. I'm having such a hard time with like 
time today for some reason. <laughs> ah, yeah. Anyway, so related to Thanksgiving, we thought we would talk a little bit about some books related to colonialism, um, which I have to admit, I have not read either of the books that I'm going to talk about, but they have, they both looked interesting to me. So that's where I'm coming at it from. Um, so the first one is one that um, a friend who has read a lot of nonfiction really has recommended pretty strongly a few times, and I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, the book is called King Leopold's Ghost, A Story of Greed, Terror, Terror and Heroism in Colonial Africa by Adam Hothschild. Um, and so this book is about uh, the 1880s when King Leopold II of Belgium seized vast and mostly unexplored territory around the Congo River. And then he carried out a genocidal plundering of the Congo where he looted the rubber that was there. He brutalized the people who lived there and ultimately... Um, killed more than 10 million people all while shrewdly cultivating his reputation as a humanitarian, which is just like so aggravating to read. I can't even tell you. Um, so the book is about that period of time, uh, the efforts people went through to expose all this crimes, um, which eventually led to a human rights campaign, which is a positive outcome perhaps. Um, and so I'm just going to quote part of the book as the description, because it's really good. So it says, it's a haunting account of a megalomaniac of monstrous proportions. A man as cunning, charming, and cruel as any of the great Shakespearean villains, and then also the people who fought against him. Uh, and so I think it just sounds... I've heard from uh, the friend of ours who recommended it that it's really great, and I just need to go find it and read it. Uh, and that book is King Leopold's Ghost, A Story of Greed, Terror, and Heroism in Colonial Africa by Adam Hosschild. Yeah, I've um I've read part of that and it is like extremely fascinating and and horrifying. He he was basically like, "Okay, I'm the king of Belgium. My country's not that big. I want to have an empire." And then he was looking for an un unclaimed region, and he was like, "What about the Congo?" And then he basically gathered all of these renowned people and he was like, "Oh, um I'm setting up all of these like humanitarian sites or throughout the Congo, so do you guys want to work on that with me because he didn't want other countries to know that he was like trying to claim it for Belgium. Like he sucks. Just like flat out sucks." <laughs> anyway, on that note. Um so my pick is Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee: An Indian History of the American West by D Brown. Um this was written in 1970. It has never gone out of print. I think it's in been published in like 17 languages or something like that. There was a movie made of it. Like there's um it's basically it's a very sort of if you've heard of it, it's probably because it's been around for so long mm -hmm. and it's sort of like pervaded the culture at this point. So what it is, it is it covers the history of Native Americans in the American West in the late 19th century. It starts kind of with this overview from 1492 up to about like 1860. And then in each of the following chapters, um, Dee Brown provides this sort of in-depth description of a significant post-1860 event in American Western expansion or Native American eradication, which is is what was going on there, right? Like Manifest Destiny is Native American eradication. Um, again, the power of words. Uh, so uh, he, focused in he focuses in turn on uh, sort of the specific tribe or tribes involved in the event. So in the narrative, he primarily discusses tribes like the Navajo Nation, Santi Dakota, Hunkpapa, Lakota, Oglala Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Apache people, and then a lot of other um, tribes that he doesn't go as in-depth on. But it's also very helpful, right, in terms of seeing not just we talk a lot about either American Indians or Native Americans, but these were all very distinct tribes with extremely different cultures and languages. So 
the reason it's called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee is it's named after this poem that didn't actually have to do with um, Native Americans, but Wounded Knee was the location of the last major confrontation between the U.S. Army and Native Americans in, I believe, 1890. Um, So, and then the quote from D. Brown that I kind of wanted to end with was he said that Americans who have always looked westward when reading about this period should read this book facing eastward, which I was like, yes, let's change our perspective on this. Um, So again, that... Yeah, I know. I know. I know. There's a reason that this book has been like, again, in print since 1970. Um, So again, that's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, an Indian History of the American West by Dee Brown. Excellent. Um, So my second book is, I think, related to that one in some ways, um, and also related to our previous segment because it is another one of the finalists for the National Book Award. And it's called The Indian World of George Washington, The First President, The First Americans, and The Birth of the Nation by Colin C. Callow. Colin C. Calloway, and it's from Oxford University Press. Um, And so this is a big chunkster history book, like 640 pages, uh, that uses, um, and I'm going to quote again, the prism of George Washington's life to bring to focus the great native leaders of his time and the tribes that they represented. Um, So it basically covers decades of uh, the leader, Native American leaders' interactions with George Washington back from when he was first a surveyor to a military general and then through his presidency when he kind of tried to deal with, um, the book says, deal with Native Americans as a head of state would deal with a foreign power, um, trying to use diplomacy and persuasion to uh, expand the republic and appropriate the land of the Native Americans who lived there. Um, so this is, I, I wasn't, This one is interesting to me because I think like the idea of using his interactions with Indian and Native Americans um, as a a prism to look at his biography is a really interesting approach. And I think a really good way of looking at some uh, founding father that we obviously like there's much reason. There are many reasons to admire him, but also reasons to be skeptical and at least ask like why things were done the way they were done. Um, And so Colin Calloway is a professor of history and a professor of Native American studies at Dartmouth College. Um, And Kirkus, I looked at the review for this one, and Kirkus called it insightful and illuminating, but relentlessly squirm-inducing, which sounds just about right for a book about George Washington and his interactions with Native Americans. Uh, So the book is called The Indian World of George Washington, The First President, The First Americans, and The Birth of the Nation by Colin C. Calloway. I'm on board with all of these kind of early American history sudden like, oh, let's look at these other people yeah. who were hugely affected by this, right? Like that's like um what was the book that I talked about and hadn't read and then you read never it caught. about George Washington? Yeah, never caught um, never caught. Erica Dunbar never caught. Yeah. Yeah. That just it just seems like, you know, in a, like a similar wheelhouse. Yeah, and they absolutely. both sound really, really good. Yeah. Um okay. So my other pick for our colonialism Thanksgiving segment. Is uh fourteen I know sorry fourteen ninety three uncovering the new world Columbus created by Charles Seaman. So this is his follow up to the bestseller fourteen ninety one, um, which was talking about you know like what the Americas were like before Columbus landed. Um, so this is a history of how European settlements in the post Columbian Americas 
um, shaped the world, which I think is is sounds very positive, actually. But it's just it's actually a neutral statement, right? Like mm-hmm. shape the world tends to sound very grandiose, but it's actually just like this is the effect that this had. Um, so he presents this research by biologists, anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians, which is a list I love. Um, so man shows how the post-Columbian network of ecological and economic exchange fostered the rise of Europe. It devastated imperial China. Um, it affected Africa, and for um, two centuries made Mexico City the center of the world, uh, which is awesome. So, but Columbus is not awesome. Let's just, <laughs> this podcast does not, <laughs> does not endorse Christopher Columbus. Um, but so, but throughout this, so he sort of shows how the germ of today is sort of like fiercest political disputes, um, how, like where that started. It, like he traces it back, right, to this like initial, um, it wasn't a conquering, right? But just invasion. This like not quite colonization, but his Columbus's initial invasion of the Americas and how that mm-hmm. affected everything up to today in America and uh the world. So again, that is 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created by Charles C. Mann. Interesting. I feel like I've said this before, but I think it'd be super interesting to put together. I'm sure someone has uh, a book list of just all the books that are like that have years for titles. Um, and just like see what years have really gotten that kind of focused treatment because there's a ton of them. Um, I think that would just 1848 be... for sure. Yeah, there's. I mean, the, Bill Bryson did one. I think it was 1927. Um, I'm that almost, book was so good. Yeah, right. And I'm I'm almost positive it was one about like 1968 or 1969, but I can't I can't remember for sure. Um. But yeah, but there's a lot of them. Like that'd be, I think, a really interesting just collection. Anyway, uh, it's my my dream of like book riot posts I could write someday in the future. <laughs> and there's one of them. <laughs> uh, all right. So we will close out this week's podcast as we usually do by talking about the books that we are reading uh, right now. Um, and I am actually, I'm trying to finish up Heartland and One Person No Vote. So these are both, again, I think books that I am aspiring to read next. Um, and the first one is actually another National Book Award Um a long-listed title that I managed to get from the library that looks awesome and so interesting. And it's called Brothers of the Gun, a memoir of the Syrian war by Marwan Hasham and Molly Crabapple. And so this is a memoir by a guy who was a Syrian Syrian freedom fighter and participated in the Syrian revolution. Um, and so he is... It's a coming of age story about that, him coming of age during that time. Um, and the reason there's a co-author is because parts of it are illustrated. So it's, um, it is a memoir. It's like text-based, but there are lots of these really beautiful, sketchy, um, intense illustrations that go along with it that I think just looks super, super interesting. And I, I, I don't know enough about the Syrian war, even though that's one of the, like the great humanitarian crises of our time, really. Um, that I wish I did know more about. So I'm hoping that once I finish those other two, I can pick this one up because I've got it out from the library right now. Um, and then the other book that's just kind of on my radar that I'm ex- excited is a little word. So anyway, I'm a big proponent of bullet journaling. Like I do a lot of that. Um, and the creator of the bullet journal method, Ryder Carroll, Ryder Carroll just came out with a book kind of talking about the whole thing, which is called the bullet journal method. So if I'm going to get my like organization nerd self, uh, reading, that's going to be one of the ones I pick up kind of near the end of the year, I think, to get like organized and refocused again. So uh, Brothers of the Gun by Marwan Hasham and Molly Crabapple and The Bullet Journal Method by Ryder Carroll are both on my TBR this weekend. 
Um, I want to do a real quick aside and Brothers of the Gun, because you mentioned the Syrian war. Of course, I thought of Syria, which I was just watching this documentary on Netflix called uh, The Ascent of Woman, where this historian who is awesome, uh, she traveled to all of these different countries and she basically goes back to like Mesopotamia and is talking about like, what do we what evidence do we have a women's role in society then? And she go but she goes to these different countries and she has the women from those countries look at like texts like she has the Syrian woman look at an Assyrian set of laws that were about like what women could do or rather could not do and like how men essentially completely owned them and could like kill them at any time and all this stuff. And so she reads like they have these women read these things in their own languages and it's just very powerful and like makes you feel very much like a citizen of the world and like, you know, in connection with these other people. Um, So uh, yeah, thanks for reminding me of that documentary, The Ascent of Woman. It was great. Um, Anyway, so what I'm currently reading is extraordinarily frothy. And what I felt I needed after, of course, the election of this last week was very tense and there was a lot of stress around it. And we had some really great things happen and some not great things happen, as with most elections. Um, Stakes just felt a little bit higher this time. So um, my read is I'd rather be reading The Delights (laughs) and Dilemmas of the Reading Life by Ann Bogle. Um, She has uh, a blog called, I think it's The Modern Mrs. Darcy. Mm -hmm. And she's she's just very charming and just like a bunch of really short, quick essays about reading and, you know, like how you can like maximize your shelf space and like all this stuff. Like it's just really, really cute and like how much she loved her local library. And I just like every time I'm feeling like a little overwhelmed, I'm like, I'm going to read another essay from uh, I'd Rather Be Reading. So um, that, that's been getting me through the, the last couple of weeks. Sounds delightful. That sounds perfect. It is. Excellent. Um, so in conclusion, uh, you can find us on social media. On Twitter, I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And uh, if you feel so inclined, uh, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast you podcasting thing you use. Uh, rating and reviewing help people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so that uh, you can get new episodes of the podcast the very minute that they come out. Uh, so with that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>